Good morning, Calvary Bible Church family. Great to be together and to worship the Lord together. I wanted to take you back to my childhood, and Little Brett is reading novels. I love to read detective novels, and one of the things I noticed about novel writers is they love to use a technique that's called the cliffhanger. You get to the end of one book, and it sort of draws that book to a conclusion, but then there's something in it that makes you think something more is coming, and it makes you wait for the next installment in the book. Well, uh, not on purpose, but accidentally, I did a cliffhanger last week. Uh, If you remember, I preached on our core value of humble prayer, and I preached on the verses, uh, the Lord's instructions on prayer from Matthew chapter 6, which then lead into the Lord's prayer itself. And I said that there are 11 aspects of prayer. We covered four of them. And I said that the other seven would need to be in a second message. And I implied that that would be this week, which is what I was intending at the time. But then people reminded me that over a month ago, I had sent out a schedule telling everyone, the worship team and the Sunday school teachers and staff and everyone, which topics were on which week. And this week is supposed to be on preaching, not on prayer, and so I decided to do a cliffhanger, to move on to the next core value, and then to return to part two of that message on prayer after this mini-series on our core value is is over. So that message is coming. It's probably going to be in early December. So, you know, cliffhangers are frustrating because it's hard to wait uh, for the next part, but it's hopefully exciting as the anticipation uh, build. So that was an accidental cliffhanger. If you came here expecting to hear a message on prayer, I'm sorry to disappoint you. If you're excited to hear a message on the Word of God, I'm glad that you're excited with me. We are going to be talking about the Word of God, the Scriptures, the Bible. And we're going to be studying a key passage on the Word of God from 2 Timothy chapter 3. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 16, and then we're going to go on to chapter 4, verse 5. 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 5 is going to tell us five truths about the Word of God. It's going to tell us that the Word of God is perfect, that it is practical, that it is powerful, that it must be preached, and that it must be our priority. It is because the Word of God is perfect and practical and powerful that it must be preached. And it is because it is perfect, practical, and powerful that it must be our priority. So that's why our next core value, our fifth core value is expository preaching. Expository preaching. Unlike liturgical churches where ceremonies and rituals have the central place in the service, in our church, preaching has the central place in the service. In fact, we're named Calvary Bible Church because of the centrality of the word in our faith and practice. The question is why? Why do we do what we do? Why does the preaching of the word occupy such a central place in our services? The elders' statement on this core value answers that question and answers it as follows. 
The word of God is living and active, Hebrews 4.12. Profitable, 2 Timothy 3.16. Perfect and restorative, Psalm 19.7. And the means by which lost souls are saved by faith, Romans 10.17. Therefore, in joyful application of the Lord's command to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, that's Matthew 28, 20, we emphasize the systematic study, preaching, and teaching of Scripture in every service, decision, and ministry of the church. This requires humble prayer for illumination and transformation by the Holy Spirit, diligent study using a historical grammatical hermeneutic, careful attention to the context of each passage, a focus on authorial intent, and a congregational commitment to be discerning and eager doers of the word, not hearers only. James 1, through 25. Let me read that to you again. Just listen to the view of Scripture that the elders have articulated. The word of God is living and active, profitable, perfect, restorative, and the means by which lost souls are saved by faith. Therefore, in joyful application of the Lord's command to teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, we emphasize the systematic study, preaching, and teaching of Scripture in every service, every decision, and every ministry of the church. This requires humble prayer for illumination and transformation by the Holy Spirit. It requires diligent study using a historical grammatical hermeneutic. It requires careful attention to the context of each passage and a focus on authorial intent. And finally, it requires a congregational commitment to be discerning and eager doers of the word, not hearers only. Now, to understand why expository preaching has been a core value of Calvary Bible Church since its founding 90-some years ago, I want to take you to 2 Timothy 3.16 through chapter 4, verse 5. A really key passage for our understanding of Scripture, our doctrine of Scripture, and for our understanding of what we are supposed to do in the church and then individually out from the church. So read along with me as I read 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
In this text, we see five truths about the Word of God. Five truths about the Word of God. And the first is that the Word of God is perfect. The Word of God is perfect. Verse 16 says, All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired by God. That word translated as inspired in many English versions is theopneustos. It's literally breathed out by God, God's breath, God breathed. As assuredly as my words are formed by my breath, God's words are formed by his breath. So if you want to know his heart, you have to listen to his word. Imagine trying to get to know the heart of a friend or the heart of a family member. There's no way to know what's in their heart except for through their words. And Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the way you know what's in a person's heart is by listening to what comes out of their mouth. Similarly, to know what is in the heart of God, you need to listen to his word. Scripture is God-breathed. It's what is coming from his heart to us. And just as God is perfect, so also his word is perfect. Just as God is inerrant, so also his word is inerrant. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Psalm 119.160 says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. John 17.17, 17, Jesus says, Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Our church is named Calvary Bible Church for a very simple reason. We believe the Bible. And we believe that the Word of God must have a central place in the church and in the life of every believer. We believe in sola scriptura, that great Reformation principle that it is Scripture alone that has authority. The Word of God has authority. I don't have authority. I'm not a mediator in between you and God. I don't grant forgiveness. You don't have to come through me to obtain truth and all of that. I am just a teacher, just a preacher. The Bible teaches that every believer is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You have the Spirit of God within you and the Word of God in front of you, which means you can have a direct personal relationship with God. I'm just here to help you learn more about Him, to get to know Him deeper. We believe the Bible, and so we preach the Bible. There are seven convictions about Scripture which we hold to fully and firmly at CBC. This has been true for the generations preceding me. I pray it will be true for the generations that will follow me if the Lord does not return in my lifetime. Seven convictions about God's Word. First, Inspiration. God said it. This is God's holy and living word. It is God breathed. Second is inerrancy. It simply means that what God said is true. 
God said it, and it is true. Next is preservation. What God said hasn't been lost. God did not inspire his word and then fail to providentially preserve it so that we could have it in our day. The text of Scripture is the best affirmed and attested by evidence text in the history of the world, bar none. God has marvelously preserved his word. What God said has not been lost. He said it, it's true, it has not been lost. Next, authority. What God said is binding. It is binding. It is authoritative over us. The Scripture judges us. We don't judge the Scripture. Next is sufficiency. What God said contains everything we need. Everything we need for life and godliness is right here. People living in different times and contexts, different situations, different types of people, all of what they need is here. Their loving creator has told us everything we need to know for life and godliness. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is pers- perspicuous. We believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, that what God said is clear. God is a good communicator. He didn't give us some esoteric mystery that we can't understand. He communicated clearly to us. That doesn't mean that Bible interpretation is not difficult at times, but it means it is possible. Scripture is meant to be understood. Those who say that we can't understand the Bible, we can't know what it really means, are denying God's own ability to communicate. We also believe in illumination, that God helps us understand what he said. Not only is the scripture clear, but he gives us the indwelling Holy Spirit. The author of the word indwells the reader of the word so that he can understand and apply the word. We believe in the inspiration, inerrancy, preservation, authority, sufficiency, perspicuity, and illumination of Holy Scripture. We always have, and I pray we always will. And you as a congregation have a sacred responsibility to ensure that that is the case. Never, not now, not a hundred years from now, if the Lord tarries, should this congregation ever vote in a preacher who doesn't hold to these seven truths. If someone doesn't hold to these seven truths, kindly show them the door. As Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, guard this treasure. Guard this treasure. This is a treasure which we must still be holding when the Lord returns. Sadly, many churches do not guard the treasure. And churches that began as gospel-teaching, Bible-believing churches have now departed from the faith. May that never be true of us. The word of God is perfect. The second truth about Scripture from this passage is that the word of God is practical. Verse 16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It is profitable. It has value. It is practical. It is, to use the buzzword of our day, it is relevant. It is 
worthwhile. It is useful. It is practical. Now, I want to talk about this issue a little bit of the practicality and relevance of Holy Scripture. Because when pollsters ask people what they want from a sermon, do you know what the number one response is? I want something which is practical and relevant for my daily life. Now, I want us to do a little thinking about that. Now, on its face, it seems okay. It seems fine. I mean, the opposite of practical is impractical, and the opposite of relevant is irrelevant, and something that is impractical and irrelevant doesn't seem to be very worthwhile. On that, I think we would all agree. We're not here to do something impractical and irrelevant. You're not spending 45 minutes of your valuable time for something that is impractical and irrelevant. But I do want to dig a little bit under the surface of this cultural trend where everyone is saying, I want something practical and relevant to my daily life. So the college student wants something that's going to help them get through their finals. And the, the hardworking man wants something that's going to help him get through that hard day. Those with marriage problems want something that's going to help them get through their marriage. Those struggling financially want something that's going to help them manage or acquire wealth better. They want something practical and relevant. There's a part of that which is okay, but there's a part of that that is troubling when you dig beneath the surface. And I want to tell you what I think is going on in some cultural trends with this emphasis on practicality and relevance. First of all, I think there is a man-centered worldview and mentality happening. People think we should start with man and then move to God when that's exactly upside down. He is the creator. We're the creation. Things start with him, not us. Not us. So underneath this push for relevance and practicality is a worldview which is man-centered and said that we should start with what people think they need to hear instead of what God thinks they need to hear. Who is the best determiner of your needs? You or God? If you ever doubt this principle, just start letting your children determine what they need. My children they, here's what they don't need. They don't need homework, and they don't need vegetables, and they definitely don't need dentist visits. They need candy. They need toys. They need fun. But as a parent, at least hopefully, I know a little better what they need. If I, as a parent, know better than my children what they need, how much more does the Creator know what we need then we know what we need. The problem is that oftentimes our felt needs are not our real needs. Also underneath this push for relevance and practicality, all, every preaching conference is about how to make the sermons relevant and practical. And when you listen to them sometimes, what you here, never said explicitly, but implied underneath the surface, is that the Bible itself is irrelevant and boring and powerless. So somehow the preacher has to take, it's like, oh, we're burdened with this 
old-fashioned, irrelevant, out-of-date document that somehow we've got to drag it into the 21st century like, a, like an unworking car. We have to just drag it in and then try to get people to get in the car. And we have to push the Scripture into relevancy. It's a low view of Scripture. Correspondingly, it's, there's a high view of the preacher. Low view of the Word of God, high view of the Word of the preacher. Because he, in his ingenuity and in his oratory, can do this. He can make life-changing speeches that can inspire and transform you. And he can even drag the old-fashioned Bible into the modern era. What a hero. I think there's some deep-seated problems underlying this cultural trend. Man-centered worldviews, a low view of Scripture, and a high view of human charisma and ingenuity and oratory. The problem in much of the modern discussions of the relevance and practicality in preaching is the underlying assumption that the Bible is not relevant and practical, but whatever popped into the preacher's head while he was trying to wiggle into his skinny jeans is relevant and practical. That is the assumption of our day. That the scripture is irrelevant and impractical, but whatever pops into the preacher's mind as he flips his microphone off (laughs) is what's relevant and practical. And to be honest, I don't get that. Maybe it's because I don't have any genius ideas, no remarkable insights that can just change your life I know someone who does have those ideas, though, and he wrote them down for us. I don't get some of these preachers who think their trite stories and their little practical preaching points are more relevant than the very words of the living God. I don't get that. To me, that is hubris on a huge scale. How could you ever think some preacher's stories and musings are more relevant and practical than the word of the living God. What are so many people getting on Sunday mornings? They're getting bad forms of philosophy and psychology. It's not even good philosophy or good psychology. It's just whatever the preacher thinks will help the people. It's just musings and stories. What an ego some of these guys must have. They seem to think that large crowds come every Sunday to hear from them. Just waiting on the edge of the seats to hear the new insights from the mind of the preacher. Their thoughts, their ideas, and their advice. That's not how I view preaching at all. I don't think you're coming here to hear me. I don't think you've been coming here, some of you, for decades to hear John Monroe, John Barnett, or the first (laughs) non-John. Share life-transforming insights that popped into their head during the week. I think you've been coming for one reason only, and that is to hear the living and active word of God proclaimed. We have a text. We have a text. The word for preaching in 2 Timothy 4.2 is a word which means to herald something. It's the term historically which is used for the town crier. 
the king would make decisions or, or want to share something with the population and the town criers would go out to the public scare, squares and simply announce the communications of the king, his decisions, his will, his instructions. The herald was not supposed to be an innovator. It's not like as he was walking from the palace to the town square, he's thinking, I've got to come up with some really relevant and practical things to share with the people today. No, he has something relevant and practical, and that is the king's edicts. They have to know what the king has said. The preacher is just a herald, someone who announces the king's message. We don't make it up. We simply receive it and pass it on. We receive and deliver the word of God. That's all. And that is exactly what ensures that the sermon will be practical and relevant. For what is more relevant, what could be more relevant to a created being than knowing the mind, will, and heart of his creator? What could be more practical and relevant than knowing why you were created and how to be saved from eternal destruction and what your purpose is in this life and what the future holds for you? What can be more practical and relevant than knowing God's moral law, what he says about ethics, how you are to live, how you are to think, how to devote your life to things that matter instead of wasting it on frivolity or worse, plunging into evil and the chains of sin? What could be more practical than being taught how to throw off the chains of sin and set free by the Son of God for whom the Son sets free is free indeed? There can't be anything more relevant and more practical than what the Scripture gives us. I'm not sure anyone cares to hear my thoughts on how to, you know, how to improve their garden or, you know, how to be more successful in your workplace. Go to a business seminar for that. I don't know your industry. I didn't get struck by lightning and some, somehow become a guru for every aspect of your life. I'm here for one purpose and one purpose only, and that is to explain and declare and try to drive home into your hearts the words of the living God revealed to us in Scripture. I don't have to make the Bible relevant and practical. It is relevant and practical. I can't even, it troubles me whenever I hear someone talk about making preaching relevant and practical. I'm thinking, what is your source? If your source is Scripture, it is relevant and practical. Now, I agree with you know, needing to not make it boring and all that, but sometimes I, I think that we worry so much about relevance and practicality because we have such a fleshly view of things. God knows what we need. Sometimes it's veggies, not super exciting, but very nutritious. 2 Timothy 3.16 gives us four ways the Bible is practical and profitable. The Word of God is inspired and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. The four practical things that the Scripture does for us. It teaches us. It tells us what is right. It reproves us. It tells us what is wrong. It corrects us. It tells us how to fix what is wrong. And then it trains us in righteousness. It shows us how to apply the truth how to live in accordance with the truth. 
tells us what's right, tells us what's wrong, helps us fix what's wrong, and then helps us live in the truth on a daily basis. What can be more practical than that? So the preacher's job, first of all, is to teach. Scripture is profitable, first of all, for teaching. So the preacher's job is to teach. Hendrickson says that teaching in this text refers to imparting knowledge concerning God's revelation. Preachers should impart knowledge. In other words, you should learn something from the sermon. If you don't learn anything from the sermon, it's probably because the preacher hasn't learned anything from his studies, which makes you wonder whether he actually did study. I mean, it's a pretty tall order to spend half your week studying a passage and learn nothing. Maybe he didn't properly prepare. As I study each week, Lord willing, by the help of your prayers, I am learning. I spend my week learning. I spend hours and hours and hours learning so that I can spend 45 minutes teaching, just passing it on to you. I once had the privilege of visiting Warren Wearsby at his home shortly before his death in 2019. I could tell immediately why so many people learned so much from him during his life of ministry on both the radio and at Moody Memorial Church and through his commentaries. That man was a student of God's word. He was always learning. That's why he could teach. When we went into his house, he was just so friendly, just You wouldn't have known him from any other late 80s old man that you talked to, but full of joy. And then you walk down into his basement, and it's wall-to-wall books and multiple tables with piles of commentaries and reference materials and papers, and he was showing us uh, two or three different books that he was working on and sermons, even here in his late 80s. And as he, he, you know, we were asking whether we could, could kind of look through things, he, you know, he said, sure. And then when I was kind of looking through this pile, he says, oh, be careful with that one. That has a handwritten note from Charles Spurgeon on it. It's one of his original leafs from his sermon notes. I was real careful after that, leafing through, leafing through those papers. Even into his 80s, a student of the word and therefore a teacher. In his commentary on 2 Timothy 3.16, Wearsby writes, above all else, the pastor must preach doctrine. He must not simply tell Bible stories or relate interesting illustrations. True preaching is the explanation and application of Bible doctrine. Anything else is just religious speech-making. Anything else is just religious speech-making. I think he hit the nail on the head. Preach the doctrines of Scripture, and you will be practical and relevant, for nothing is more life-transforming and powerful than the living Word of God. Anything else is just a religious speech. And I don't think anything is as impractical and irrelevant as wasting 45 minutes to hear a religious speech which originated in some dude's own mind consists of shallow and trite stories often poorly told and is devoid of any real doctrine or doxology. Why waste your time? By the way, ever since this movement came to leave the expository preaching of the Word of God and to try to craft, you know, try to wow the crowd through your own oratory, guess what the net result has been in our country? The churches are being emptied in droves. It's backfiring. 
Oddly enough, hearing some guy share the musings of his own mind is something people only do for a short period of time. After that, they've heard that, been there, done that, and they're, they're gone. We need to teach. There needs to be biblical doctrinal content in our teaching, preaching, and in our Bible studies. The preacher's second job is to reprove. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, and next, for reproof. The preacher is to give reproof to you. We're supposed to ruffle your feathers. No one likes that. Why does God want the preacher to ruffle your feathers? Well, it's because you have some blood-sucking ticks under there. Yeah. You're not perfect, just like I'm not. You have sin in your life, and so your feathers have to be ruffled so that the Lord can pluck those things out of your life. They're draining you. They're hurting you. So the Lord wants the preaching to ruffle your feathers. You should leave this building upset and even angry sometimes. I can't believe he said that. How dare he? I came to be encouraged. Instead, he kind of poked me where it hurt. I suppose a preacher who keeps it positive and encouraging and never reproves or rebukes would be a good thing if he has a perfect congregation. <laughs> so guess what? <laughs> I love you, but you're not little angels, and neither am I. And neither am I. We all need reproof from the Word of God. We need reproof. I need reproof. You need reproof. Just this morning, I was blessed with some reproof given in an appropriate way by a member of the congregation. I'm just trying to be faithful to what the scripture tells us to do. We are supposed to reprove. Hendrickson says, warnings based on the word must be issued. Errors in doctrine and in conduct must be refuted in the spirit of love. Dangers must be pointed out. False teachers must be exposed. We are to reprove. The preacher's third job is to correct. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, and third, for correction. So it's not supposed to stop at reproof. If a preacher just reproves you, pointing out your sin and error all the time, but never shows you how to correct that sin or to correct that error, then he hasn't finished his job. He's like a surgeon who cut you open in order to remove the tumor and then never sewed you back up. Just left you bleeding on the table. I hope I don't do that. I hope I don't leave my work unfinished. Yes, we've got to ruffle those feathers to pull the tick, but then we're supposed to apply the balm of Gilead. MacArthur, commenting on the meaning of the Greek term for correction, writes, quote, in secular Greek literature, it was used of setting upright an object that had fallen down and of helping a person back on his feet after stumbling. Something has fallen down in your life. Preaching is supposed to help set it back in place. You've fallen into sin. Preaching is supposed to help lift you back on your feet. Preaching should be restorative. Galatians 6 says, restore those who are caught in trespasses with a spirit of gentleness. The purpose of the reproof 
is the restoration. The purpose of reproof is to lead you to correction, to stand you back on your feet, to bless you by helping you up. After reproof should come correction. And then fourth is training in righteousness. This is the longest and the hardest step. Training takes lots of time. It's something that's cumulative over a long time. The word used here for training in righteousness is paideia, which is the same term used in Ephesians 6.4, where fathers are supposed to raise up their children in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. That's a long-term process. It's an 18-year process. It's day by day and little by little. And the effect, the growth in maturity comes over time. When you're born again, you're born a spiritual infant. And you need to start being trained. Trained how to talk to the Lord in prayer. Trained how to understand the Word of God. How to apply the Word of God. And that is something that training in righteousness takes years and years. It goes on throughout our lifetime until the Lord returns and finishes the work he started in us. So it's the cumulative effect of training which has the impact. So expository preaching is not designed to wow you or to be a a one and done. It's not dessert. It's meat, potatoes, and veggies. Its value is not in the short term. It's in the long term. So my goal in preaching is I'm not... I'm not aiming to get you to go home and say, wow, what a sermon. I better tweet about this one. That's not the goal. What I'm shooting for is to someday hear you say, or maybe never hear you say, but maybe someone else to hear you say, you know, I can't point to any one sermon that changed my life. But the cumulative effect of the systematic preaching of God's word over the course of many years has caused incredible growth in my life. I'm shooting for the long-term effect, not the short-term wow factor. I'm not interested in serving dessert. I want to serve meat, potatoes, and veggies. Dessert is nice, and there are men much more gifted than I that can give you dessert, that can give you that message that you'll walk away saying, that's, that's just the best message I've ever heard. I don't think anyone will ever say that about one of my messages. What I hope for, though, is that the cumulative effect of the systematic teaching will cause a growth in maturity. You can go to YouTube or to conferences to get dessert and the wow factor. The Lord has blessed certain guys to give that, and and dessert is a good thing, and I appreciate those who give that. Well, we are to do these practical things, teach, reprove, correct, and train in righteousness. That brings us now to the third aspect or truth about the Bible, which is that the Word of God is powerful. It's not only perfect and practical, it is powerful. Look at what verse 17 says. It says, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. This is power. This is something powerful. If it can adequately equip you or thoroughly equip you for every good work, that is power. What else can do that? What can equip you for every good thing that God wants you to do? Every good work. It's an astounding statement here. Scripture is so powerful, so effective, that it can thoroughly equip you for everything and anything that God wants and intends for you to do. It will thoroughly equip you to please the Lord, to accomplish the purpose for which he made you, to be fruitful in his service. 
So the whole point of preaching is just for the preacher to get out of the way and let God's word do what God, God's word does. I want God's word to do what God word, God's word does. It thoroughly equips you. I'm just a clay pot. I'm just going over to the spigot of living water and I'm trying not to drop it on the way to you. It has nothing to do with the clay pot. Who cares about the clay pot the water's in? The treasure is the water. So the preacher's job is pretty simple. Just get the water and don't drop it. The word of God is powerful. Fourth truth, the word of God must be preached. Chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. The word of God must be preached. The importance of this command to preach the word cannot be overstated. Paul writes this shortly before his martyrdom. He's writing to Timothy, and he's saying, Timothy, I am about to leave this world. My life is about to end, and you and those who follow you will be the ones left. What do I want you to do, Timothy? What do I want successive generations of Christian leaders to do? I want you to preach the word. This is my dying wish. These are my dying instructions. If you forget everything, remember this, preach the word. That's the historical context. Secondly, notice what he says. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. This charge was given by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It was given in the presence of the Father and in the presence of the Son. And so all three persons of the Trinity will hold Christian leaders accountable to this sacred charge. It is said that Christ will judge the living and the dead. And it is said in the context of this command to preach the word. In other words, Christ will hold preachers accountable to this command. Did you preach the word? I have zero doubt that I will someday stand before Christ and give an account for what I did in this pulpit and what I did not do in this pulpit. I will give an account to him. Let not many presume to be teachers, James says, because those who teach will be judged more strictly. I will be judged by a strict standard. Did you, Brett Laird, preach my word? Or did you get up and bloviate your private musings? Did you shirk from declaring the whole counsel of God because it wasn't popular in the culture or because someone wouldn't like it? Do you preach the word? Whether or not pastors have kept this sacred charge will be revealed when Christ returns. He says, I adjure you by the Lord's coming. When he comes, will he find you faithfully preaching his word? God will judge unfaithful pastors who fail to uphold their sacred duty. This is a solemn, sacred, and binding charge. The word must be preached. Fifth, the word must be our priority. Chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths, but you 
be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Our passage ends with the word, with the words, fulfill your ministry. In other words, make these things your priority. Fulfill them. Be faithful in them. Make them your priority. Well, well, what things? What should be our priority? In verses 2 through 5, there's nine imperatives, nine commands that should be the, obeyed by every preacher and by every Christian. The first is preach the word. God's authorial intent should control the preacher's content, not vice versa. God's authorial intent should control the preacher's content. He decides what's preached. Second, be ready in season and out of season. Hendrickson points out that this term, everywhere else it's used in the New Testament, means to arrive, to come near, to be present, to be on hand. In other words, he's saying show up when it's convenient for you and when it's not convenient for you. Someone has a need, show up, be there, arrive, be present. There's a ministry opportunity, show up, arrive, come, be near, be present, be ready. Hendrickson defines this term as being ever on the spot. Wherever, wherever is that spot where, there's, where the word of God needs to be ministered, there you are. You'll be there. Be ready in season and out of season. Show up. Show up. Third, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And then there's a phrase that modifies all three of those commands. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. So there's kind of three levels here. Exhortation is kind of the most mild form. You're just being kind of positively exhorted. Then you have reproof. We already talked about that from chapter 3, verse 16. That's kind of the ruffling of the feathers. But then there's a word here, rebuke. That's a lot more than ruffling the feathers, that's the surgeon's cut. That's the dental surgery to remove a rotten molar. This is a sharp reprimand. That's what the word here means. When it says rebuke, that means give them a sharp reprimand. Boy, that's popular. That's how preachers can win friends and influence people. Start giving people sharp reprimands. Everybody loves that. You know, there are certain things in Scripture where the preacher has to obey too. Every preacher would love to be popular, but then the Lord comes and says, reprove, rebuke, and exhort them. Re rebuke? You know, I don't think I can hide from the tomatoes, you know, this new pulpit. You know, the old ones used to be a little, maybe that's why. Maybe the old preachers would give the sharp reprimands and then duck. Now, you know, we have modern pulpits and nowhere to hide from the tomatoes. The Lord commands us here, give a sharp reprimand. There are situations such as false teaching and unrepentant immorality which require a sharp reprimand. This is just following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Yes, the Lord was so tender and gentle and loving towards those who were repentant. But what did he do when the temple was being defiled and they were not repented? He grabbed a whip and he drove them out. 
what did he do with the false teaching of the Pharisees? He spends an entire chapter in Matthew. We call it the woe chapter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers, you sons of hell. It's a sharp reprimand. Paul, too, would be so tender and gentle when people were repentant, but would give sharp reprimands. Corinth had a man who is committing a very gross form of sexual immorality, the type that Paul says even the pagan world doesn't do. And he says, and yet you tolerate him, and then you take pride that you're tolerating. Oh, we're so tolerant. Look at this. We're full of grace and mercy. We accept this guy and his very immoral relationship. You know what Paul says? He says, I've already judged this matter. Throw him out and let Satan deal with him. That's what he says. And do you know what happened? They obeyed. They did that. And the Lord used that sharp reprimand to bring that man to repentance, to stand up someone who had fallen. And so in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, now restore him gently. Sometimes a sharp reprimand is needed. But we are to do all three, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. Then verse 5 says we are to be sober in all things. This means to be clear-minded, never intoxicated. So unlike the popular beer-drinking preachers, you're not going to ever see that from me. We are to be sober in all things, clear-minded, never intoxicated. And it also means having a calm and well-balanced attitude. I've got some dear friends, two of them come to mind, pastor friends. They exemplify this. They are so well balanced and calm. Whenever I'm getting a little like this, I just call one of those guys up and they're just that calming influence. They are sober in all things. So admire them for that. Then he says, endure hardship, verse 5. You have to expect hardships and endure them. Do the work of an evangelist. Be about the Great Commission and then fulfill your ministry. Be diligent and faithful until your last breath so that you can hear, well done, good and faithful servant from the Lord. And that is where Paul then goes next. He says, for I, right after he says, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. He says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Not just to me, Paul says, but to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love his appearing? Will you fulfill your ministry? My voice is telling me that I'm done with mine. The word of God is perfect, practical, powerful, must be preached, and must be our priority. Lord, help us to make that true in this church and in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.